meeting. I would wait until the open meeting. Perfect. And we have lots to process. Uh, so, Mr. Howman, where shall we begin? I think we'd like to begin with the Aquatic Center fee schedule update. You know, I'll ask uh, Sean Muir and Liberty to help us with this. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mayor, City Council. I'm Sean Muir, uh, Community Services Manager now in Public Works. And we'd like to provide you some information about the Aquatic Center fees today uh, for your consideration for future action. So the Palm Desert Aquatic Center was opened in 2011. Um, at that time, fees for entry of the Aquatic Center were established by resolution. But like everything else these days, we've seen rising operational costs and wanted to take up the um, topic of entry fees to the Aquatic Center uh, today. The YMCA is the current operator of the Aquatic Center. They've operated the facility since it opened in 2011. Uh, they've been a terrific partner. There's a brief background on this slide for you about them, but I'm sure you are well aware. Um, they also offer some programs uh, to residents to reduce the costs of the entry fees and the membership fees, um, such as Silver Sneakers and other Medicare programs. Um, and the city receives all the revenue that comes into the facility for uh, the concession sales, and then we pay a management and administration fee, annual fee for the YMCA to operate the facility. So taking up this fee study, we wanted to look at both um, local and regional aquatic centers for comparative purposes. Um, these are some examples of the regional facilities that we looked at, the Cove in Riverside and the Drop Zone in Paris. So you can see a couple water slides there and different types of pools and play equipment. Um, we considered uh, a pool to be an amenity, a water slide to be an amenity, and any you know such component of an aquatic center to be considered as one amenity. And for and this- Have you considered, the council may have to try out these slides uh, to have a good basis for comparison. That, you know, and we're not uh, making any recommendations today, but it, in the future council meetings, I intend to recommend to city council to try out the two water slides at the Palm Desert Aquatic Center. Very fun. Uh, so these are two uh, regional water parks. And we looked at the entry fees for an adult resident, just so that we're looking at apples to apples across the board. At the Aquatic Center, the fee for an adult resident to enter is $4. A non-resident is $6. And there are eight amenities at the Aquatic Center currently. So when we compare that to Drupa Park, that is a um, city-operated facility. So that's a little bit more similar. But when you look at some of these larger water parks, you can see that the Aquatic Center is competitive in the number of amenities offered. However, the price for admission is much lower. It is somewhat different in scale, yes. However, we just counted one water slide as one amenity, so it might be a much bigger water slide. Um, and that's the way that we we considered it here. Yeah. 
That's a good question. Thanks. May I ask a question as well um, in terms of um, how big are these parks? I mean, we know this, that um, what is the Splash Kingdom obviously is a larger um, enterprise or, or larger square feet. How does that compare? You know, I didn't compare the square footage of the facilities, but I can get that information back to you. Um, just, you know, at first glance, I can tell you that some of these are much larger. Splash Kingdom is no longer in operation. That one's in, in Redlands, um, but that was the big one that you'd see off the 10 freeway with the Sphinx. So, I, you know, at first, my first thought is, yes, they're much larger in square footage. Just, just for context, not a pop quiz, just a, just a thought. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I think just, just for some context, Mayor, at the Park and Rec Commission meeting, I think there's an assumption that the number of amenities at the, the Palm Desert Aquatic Center um, would justify um, some higher rates, that sort of thing. So with, with our neighboring cities, which we'll get to in a slide or two, having far fewer amenities, it was just sort of building the, the goalposts here for the discussion. So that's more the context for why, how, why we're looking at this and how ultimately it's gonna get down to what do you think the uh, residents and, and the non-residents will pay to keep the PDAC viable uh, in terms of helping it become more self-sustaining. So that's why you're seeing some of these more regional uh, things as well. All right, we'll let you get through this. Well, Thank you. can I ask a quick question? And not that we need the answers now, but do we have the attendance numbers for those other that are that are so expensive? And not that we need that now, but we will at some point need that for our decision-making process. Thank you. I'll do some research on that, yes. Thank you. So uh, for some of the more the local parks um, or aquatic centers that we looked at, we have Fritz Burns Pool in La Quinta and the Palm Springs Swim Center. And how do those stack up against the Palm Desert Aquatic Center? Well, there are far more amenities at, at the Palm Desert Aquatic Center, um, but the rates are relatively similar. So with this information, I am going to turn it over to Liberty Urban. Um, she's the Deputy Director of Finance, and she's going to get into more of the financial information for you. Thank you, Sean. Mayor, members of the City Council, Liberty Urban, Deputy Finance Director for the City. Uh, I'll try not to bore you too much with the numbers, so, um, but if you have any questions, please feel free. Um, so to give you some context about who is using the facility the most, we went back to 2011 and, um, and broke out the different types of admissions and, um, and showed the levels of admissions over time. So anything in a blue bar, blue, excuse me, a blue bar represents a resident admission and anything in an orange band represents a non-resident admission. So you can see we're very heavy in non-resident admissions, a lot of people coming from out of the city to use the facility. We're looking at about 70% non-resident admissions and 30% resident admissions. Those residents, they pay anywhere from $2.50 to $4 to use the pool, and residents you pay, pardon me, non-residents pay from $3.75 to $6 to use the pool. And those fees were established back in 2011 to aim for a 60% cost recovery rate, assuming that the general fund would be picking up the other 40%. Down, if we're looking at bringing it forward in time, looking at the end of our last fiscal year, the cost recovery is down to about 33% based on the rising operational cost and the usage of the pool. Any cost not recovered through those fees must be covered by the general fund, and we expect that to be about $1.8 million for this current fiscal year. 
to look at the historical picture of what the general fund has covered in the past. Back, we took it back to 1415. So around fiscal 1415, we were covering around $500,000. And for most years since then, that number has risen steadily um, as we covered $1.4 million at the end of last fiscal year. And as I mentioned, we're scheduled to transfer $1.8 million to cover for this year. The main cost drivers are facility repairs and maintenance. The facility is over 10 years old, so it's getting a little bit more expensive to maintain and repair it. And then we expect over the next several years there'll be more expenditures to keep the facility attractive and competitive and safe as well. We did assume for the fee analysis that uh, that attendance levels will rise back close to pre-pandemic levels. Of course, we saw that drop off in 2020 as expected, um, but we're seeing them rise back up again. Um, we also did assume that capital costs for major capital expenditures would be covered by the general fund, and we built in a 4% inflator for operating expenditures. Um, other program food and retail revenues, we expect those to come back to pre-pandemic averages, but those are not fees set by the city. So to bring us in line with the current resolution, which is the 60% cost recovery rate, we would be looking at three different options, or staff analyzed three different options for today's discussion. The first option being fees remaining the same. This is our baseline. Of course, no impact to the patron experience. Um, as far as fees go, we do see that 30% cost recovery that we have now, or that 33% cost recovery we have now dwindling down closer to the 30 mark in the next several years. If we were to do an in immediate increase to reach 60% cost recovery, we're seeing fees jump about two and a half times, or about 250% right away. And then unless an inflator is built in, that would uh, likely drop from 60%, obviously pretty quickly over the next several years. The other option we looked at was to set the fee at a 60% recovery rate, just using today's expenditures and take a few years to get there to soften the impact a little bit. So this is what those options look like in the numbers. Um, that second column, option one, that's our current $4 fee for a resident adult. An immediate increase to 60% would bump us up to $13. And then a gradual increase would take us from around $5.50 to $13 by the end of year five. And then for those non-resident adults, as we know, the non-resident admissions are very popular. We're looking at 1975. If we were to go with the slow ramp up over the next five years, our current fiscal year, that tallest kind of darkest blue line toward the middle of the graph, that's our $1.8 million subsidy. That would uh, trickle down over the next few years into 27, 28, we'd be looking at around $1.4 million subsidy. We did look at some additional considerations or discuss some additional considerations while we were going through the study. Um, how much do, uh, do we want to affect non-resident fees compared to resident fees? Um, shifting the burden between the two types of admissions, but it could affect attendance due to that 70% non-resident usage. 
We also didn't analyze punch passes as part of this study. We were just looking at daily admissions, but the pool does sell punch passes, and um, those could be raised as well. The annual passes, there's very few of them sold, less than 10 a year, so those likely wouldn't make a huge difference. And then a third option would be to establish a different recovery rate other than what is in the resolution currently. And this was an option that was discussed um, kind of in depth at the Parks and Rec Committee meeting. So we wanna show you what that looks like as well. So if we were to select a different recovery rate, um, you should have a sensitivity analysis in your packet, and this is just a snapshot of the top half of the analysis. We went into every 10% band of recovery and looked at what that would look like as far as the fees go over the next five years and as far as the general fund subsidy over the next five years. So our, the closest one to where we are at right now is that 30% band, an adult resident, is ranging from 475 to 750, and we expect that would cost the general fund about 13 and a half million over the next five years. And just to caveat that, that includes five and a half million in capital expenditures as well. I'm going to turn it back over to Sean. And I have a couple of comments and questions. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes. yes. Let's let them finish. Thank you, Liberty. Uh, so just going back to what was presented at the Parks and Rec Committee um, in the past on this topic, um, I gave a presentation back in August that provided some of that comparative analysis that you saw earlier in these slides. And then we came back in February. Um, Liberty was with me then, and we gave a more in-depth presentation on the financials. Um, the commission uh, committee did provide a recommendation to City Council, and um, it came also with some additions. So. The committee recommended to increase the fees for the aquatic center, but to also consider uh, an increase in amenities for the aquatic center. Um, an additional discussion is planned for the April 4th committee meeting as well. And so the purpose of this study session presentation is to get this information to you all um, to make some policy considerations and that um, Liberty and I will come back to a city council with, for a rec uh, direction request on that. Um, these are the three main questions. However, you know, any additional considerations um, we're definitely open to receiving as well, excuse me. Um, should the PDAC fees be increased? And if so, what model should be used? Um, Liberty presented three models. Um, there could be other options. Um, do we want to go with the 60% recovery rate as it's designated now in the resolution, or should that rate be changed to something else? And also in the resolution, it's not clear as to whether that 60% recovery rate includes capital improvements or whether it's just operations costs. So that's the third consideration that we would like to present to you today. With that, and we're open to just any be questions. clear, there was. There was no information here that I saw about the consequences of trying to recapture capital improvement expense. Am I missing anything, or is that true? Oh, yeah. So in, the, um, in this sensitivity analysis, those capital expenditures are built in. So if we 
those are included in the total amount of the general fund subsidy, but no, you're correct, there is no direct correlation between the admission fee and building those capital into there. Thank you. Um, so again, just to reiterate the process, uh, now is not the time for us to give definitive answers to those questions, especially since uh, the topic seems to be midway uh, through the Parks and Rec Committee process. But we do want to give council a chance for questions and comments. So, Council Member Nestande. Thank you. And thank you, ladies, uh, for the very thorough presentation. And uh, Mayor Kelly answered my question somewhat, but really, uh, in, to go in more detail, the demographics of who is using the pool in terms of what is the income level, because depending on what that is, fee increases might not work. It could backfire if a family of four can't afford the uh, increase. And I noticed on one of the slides, um, the graphs showed Palm Desert residents going down each year before 2020. And I wonder why that is. Is it because most people in Palm Desert that tried out the aquatic center already have a swimming pool, therefore there wasn't enough amenities to make them want to come back again. So th those kind of questions, what amenities are, are people looking for that would warrant uh, an increase to a facility like a Splash Kingdom? So th those are a couple of questions that come to mind. And then also uh, in terms of like high school teams using the, the, the pool for swim and water polo practice, uh, the morning 5.30 a.m. swim group and other programs, how much can those contribute to uh, the bottom line? And perhaps we look at having more programs like that for people that maybe are more willing to, to pay more. Those are my questions slash comments. Thank you. Uh, that brings to mind uh, for me the possible utility of using some kind of survey instrument of current users to try to get to uh, some of the curiosities that council member Nestande expressed. Uh, my suspicion is if you asked just about any user if they could afford an increase, they would say no. <laughs> uh, so it can't be quite that direct. Uh, uh, perhaps a survey instrument that asks people if they have access to any other swimming pool or what they would do if you know, the aquatic center was not accessible to them. Other ways of getting at the same uh, curiosities to find out uh, just how uh, important it is uh, for the city to provide this at an affordable cost. Uh, the other thing, I want to make sure stays in the discussion wherever this is on the agenda is that there are residual benefits to the city in attracting non-residents uh, to use 
in a minute because if they go to the trouble to spend two or more hours at the aquatic center, uh, they may well stop at one of our restaurant shop at one of our stores to take advantage of the travel. Uh, so historically, we have found that attracting people here to use Civic Center or other amenities is not just charitably minded on our part, uh, but does pay some dividends. Other questions? Okay, great presentation, uh, Ms. Urban, Ms. Muir. Thank you very much. Um, looking at the general fund subsidy chart, uh, it looks like we were meeting, up until basically COVID hit, we were meeting our 60% cost recovery numbers. So it was considered a success. There was no issue as far as entry fees. Is that right? I mean, we were at, if you go from 1415 onward, we were at 63%, 56, right around the 60% mandate that we set out when we built a thing. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I believe that's the case. I think one of the main concerns is, is that it's going to continue to cost more and more to uh, to repair an aging facility over the next few years. Okay. Because, I mean, if you just go on these numbers to me, it looks like we don't have a price per person problem. We have a uh, attendance problem that was brought on by COVID, you know, as far as hitting that our 60% mandate. So, um, and I do know... In fact, I just came from YMCA board meeting at noon, and they, my daughter actually worked at the concession stand last summer. And she, you know, it wasn't closed for COVID, but they were having problems with staffing. So when you look at the 22 or 21, 22 um, figures and how we were, how heavily we we're subsidizing it, again, I don't think the, the PDAC was closed uh, due to COVID any longer. It was more of a staffing issue. Is that correct? You know, in other words, they were only open like Friday, Saturday, Sunday during the months where kids were out of school. And so they were losing all that potential revenue based on staffing. So it seems to me like we're gonna maybe solve, what, in other words, these projections uh, going into the future, are they based on attendance and uh, entry fees from previous years? Are we, you know, because it, we're obviously running 1.8 million in the red, or we're subsidizing, but it seems to me moving forward, we're going to solve that problem just by opening the pool more frequently. So, yes, so in the second question, sorry. Oh, sorry. In the analysis, um, I did use the five years pre-COVID attendance to project going forward. So it, if um, one of the additional considerations uh, that we didn't talk about too much on this slide was also increasing maybe um, not amenities, but additional kind of programs through the YMCA to potentially to boost that attendance. I do have one more, sorry. Sure. Um, you, we talk about, you know, the three options, not raising fees at all, raising them right away to hit that, you know, 60% number, and then a five-year implementation of uh, fees increasing. So I'm just wondering if we do decide on going to that five-year implementation, can we revisit it every year and say, look, you know, we're driving people away, this isn't working, we're already hitting the 60% number, let's put a freeze on it now. I mean, we're not committed to that five-year plan right off the bat, are we? We can always revisit it, is that correct? Uh, I, I believe so. Uh, Council Member Arnick. Thank you so much. Um, I have a, a couple things, and I think we need to confirm this, but I am pretty sure that the 60% uh, recovery had nothing to do 
with putting money away for CIPs. And that's a big issue. And we, we need to take a look into that and confirm that's the case. Because if we look at other amenities we've offered to our residents, we found ourselves in trouble when we didn't put away money for repairs, reconstruction, and maintenance. So let's take a look at that. Also, you know, the living desert has a very good fee structure. We might learn something from them. Um, and it seems like, you know, we're, we're making projections on probabilities, which, you know, is only so good. But <laughs> in fact, it's not good. But um, I think we have to take a, a, a look at the fact that that was 2011 when it was opened. Nobody pays the same thing today as they did in 2011, including those people who do the operations and maintenance for the pool, including the labor costs for the pool. So I think we need to look at this and the more information we can get, I, I think we'll come up with the right answer for sure. Uh, but I, 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 I don't see how we can have charged somebody $4 and, I, and I, I know why we did it and it was a good idea, but to do it, here we are uh, 12 years later, uh, I, I think we need to really look at that closely. And Thank I you. Think, yeah, and let's make sure that we figure out how we put money away for the maintenance of that facility. Mayor Pro Tem. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, there's a lot of my questions that have been addressed by my peers and, and definitely the need to look ahead to maintenance that may be unexpected. Um, the last thing we need is an unexpected seismic activity, for example, that would cause a leak. Any things that we can't predict in our crystal ball. I know that when I took a tour, you know, they mentioned the, the pumps and the, the issues that they project over time. So I'm in full support that we need to, to build a cushion for ourselves. And in terms of the attendance, following what Councilmember Nastande mentioned, um, how, if there's a way to survey exactly, again, how many of those are athletes? How many of those are, are students that are participating? How many of them are from private clubs? And seeing if, if, again, if it's not that our residents don't want to come, but it also could be we have just so many more visitors. We are a city with a lot of tourists. We have people that come, and this is a family-friendly activity. So there's not a lot of things in the desert for somebody that comes as a visitor with small kids, especially in the summertime, to, to find something to do. So I think that makes a reasonable um, expectation that we have such large numbers. And following what um, Mayor Kelly mentioned, um, we know, and it's a fact, that experience-based opportunities are beneficial to the economy, as we mentioned during the study session with the you know, prospective idea of a roller rink. So again, they come, they stay, and they're definitely gonna get hungry after a, a day out there beyond our concession session. But I, I really would like to see a, a bit more information on the impact it would have to students. Do they already pay, for example? Is this an agreement with the school district? I mean, I, I have lots of questions on, on how we support our student athletes. And um, also, if, if we can, uh, the next time, come forward. Uh, you mentioned the Silver Sneakers program. I would really like to see, again, how many seniors we're supporting and all of the health benefits to them. So I know that's a whole lot of different questions to ask, but I think that would help our, our community understand all of the things we're taking into consideration 
regardless of how we move forward to increase gradual, if not, or where everything kind of aligns in our, our value system of how we make adjustments. Thank you. So thank you uh, for bringing us all this analysis. As you can see, we are full of questions. Uh, but I hope it will be helpful uh, to the process for you to have heard those now. Uh, so that as it comes back to us, we'll know more. So thank you. Thank you. And our next topic is... I'd like to give you a quick update on our um, wayfinding and uh, gateway entry signs. We had some questions from council members in terms of uh, what, the what the plan is um, to refresh those signs. We've had a request from the Living Desert we're working through to add another sign or two. Um, we've also had a couple questions about uh, additional gateway signs. So Lucero's going to take you through our current program. If there's questions you have, if there's research you'd like us to take a look at, we're happy to, to do that after this as we're putting our budget together. Good afternoon, Mayor and members of the City Council. My name is Lucero Leva. I'm the project manager for the Department of Capital Projects. So just kind of an overview. We figured that since we had so many questions regarding our wayfinding program, it would be uh, good for us to kind of take a time to review where it was, where it started, uh, what we have out there, what the different types are, and design types. And I'll be going into that a little more in the next couple slides. So that is actually current sign locations of the three types of signs we have in our city. I apologize that the map is so small, but we were trying to show the reach of these signs. They are pretty uh, far and wide, which is a good thing. Um, the magenta pinpoints are the monument signs. These are the art monument signs, and I'll have some pictures depicting what those look like. And then the wayfinding signs are the purple signs. There is a lot more of those, as you'll see again in the next couple slides. I'll, I'll cover that. And then the green city signs. So the art monument signs are, we have five currently in place. The banner across the picture depicts when it was installed. So for some of these, it's been a, a few years for sure. Um, again, there are five of them. They are funded by the Arts and Public Places program. And um, uh, currently the sign 2004 is up for pending, restoration pending approval in these coming next uh, fiscal year. These are the wayfinding signs. This specifically was approved back in 2008. Um, there have been no significant improvements to the panels since then. Uh, there has been some additional ones put up since then. Um, and then there are about 76 throughout the city. And the signs are currently reserved for like civic locations. Some of the ones you see up there uh, are what you would see driving around town. That's not the full list, but it's a good chunk of the list that you would see. The city limit signs are your standard green signs. They are actually part of the manual on uniform for traffic control devices. Um, again, they're standard throughout the state of California, and uh, they are there to identify the city limits and um, population and elevation, and these have, have been updated throughout the years to kind of reflect a more updated population. 
And we are currently requesting input. These are some ideas we have for what we could do. Um, and with that, I'll kind of segue into what we were thinking, maybe updating the branding as a possibility, updating current locations for consistency, um, adding new points of interest as we have continued to develop and will continue to develop in the coming years, um, reviewing and assessing the existing art monuments and possibly considering adding an additional one on Cook Street, um, and then updating the city limit signs with the more current population. Again, these are just possibilities and we're just looking for input from city council. Any questions or comments? Uh, questions, comments? You want me? Yes, Mayor Pro Tem. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, we have a lot of great signage. My only um, conversation that I would con uh, contribute is a conversation I've had with um, a guest uh, to our city that was trying to find something, saying it was sometimes hard to see them at night. Is there a way that in considering any redesign that we could either adjust the, the size of the font or maybe find a way to um, increase some ADA accessibility? Um, so just a, a thought in making sure that um, nocturnal um, function is enhanced. Thank you. Great. Um, just a one reaction which may be a catalyst for reaction uh, from others and one comment. Uh, the one reaction is that the monuments at the city entrances as pieces of art were intended to be enduring and iconic. I wouldn't mess with those. You know, unless I just had money to burn, which would not be us. So that's my one reaction. And my one small thought is, as we are identifying a new locations, let's be sure to look at the wording through the lens of the visitor. Uh, for example, discover Palm Desert means something to us, might not mean something to a visitor center, uh, to a visitor. Visitor center is a more generic uh, term. Uh, so I hope we'll take that into account. And is there a means to uh, create signs that can more easily be updated of them as signs we currently have. Thank you, Mayor. Yes, there are ways and uh, options for doing that. Great. Uh, thank you. Oh, Councilmember Harnick. Thank you very much. Uh, there was a sign at the entrance, and I believe it was at 111, probably at that um, now abandoned or empty property um, that at one time was the Rusty Pelican and one time was the Tilted Kilt. And it was by William Cody. And I have pictures of him and I'd be happy to forward one. I mean, that to me is iconic. Uh, the other ones that we have put up were, 
with Arizona sandstone of all things that we chose to use for those. Um, yes, they're supposed to be iconic, I, I get that. Um, but I would love us, and, and I'll send it over uh, to you to, to distribute as you think is fit, but to have something by William Cody is, is pretty important with the resurgence of the mid-century and all the historical um, issues that we've been dealing with and that we're now celebrating throughout the Valley. So I would like to forward those on for you to take a look at them. Great. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, anything else for our study session? Yes, we do have one uh, final issue. Uh, Veronica is going to bring the council up to speed on the uh, questions from the last work session on a potential sales tax measure, uh, primarily to fund our public safety efforts. So I'll turn it over to Veronica. Thank you, Todd. Good afternoon, Honorable Mayor, members of the City Council. Um, as Todd said, we brought this information to you back in January when we talked about the new fire station. Um, we, When we talked about that, we did the study session and I had identified that there were some potential gaps in the future as a result of the new fire station. Um, in addition to the new fire station, um, in December of 2022, we had a conversation with the chief that basically indicated there were some compounding issues as a result of their MOU discussions. And so on top of the new fire station costs, we also had costs associated with their increased wages for the fire services um, people, in addition to um, reduced hours that they were implementing. And so each of those items um, created a gap that needs to be filled. Right now, the city contributes about $4.6 million to um, cover the gap between what we receive in fire service tax in various you know, ways. Um, and we anticipate by 28-29, based on the information received from fire, that that will increase to $16.5 million. And that number does not include um, if we use the new fire truck that they are providing um, for the station. That would be an additional 3.5 million a year. So the next step we did was we took a look at how that 16.5 um, transfer, well, the incremental growth to the 16.5 affects our general fund. So you'll see at the top where we show the revenues anticipated over the next five or six years, and what that does is creates a deficit as far as the expenditures we anticipate growing quicker than the revenues for um, the entire city and the general fund. <clears throat> Sorry. Beneath that, what we have are identified are our current deferred facility maintenance that we intend to complete in the near future. That's the 18 point. 059 number that you see there. Um, the next number below that are the unfunded CIP projects that are currently in the five-year CIP but do not have a funding source. So in order to include them on the CIP, we mark them as unfunded and anticipate that they potentially would come from the reserve unless council desires some other source or identifies another source. Um, in addition to the CIP, we always keep a 20% contingency for cost overrun for any issues that occur. And so that's that third number down that you see there. 
And what that creates is a general fund balance that is quite diminished from those three numbers in addition to the increase in cost for fire. When you get down to the bottom, those are our parameters that we have currently for the reserve fund. And by the increase in cost over time, you can see those grayed out areas are areas that we cannot meet our general fund reserve requirement. When you get out to 2829, it's so far under that even our um, non-spendable funds are not um, secured. And then on the left there, we just have the projects listed that are inclusive of the unfunded CIP. I just wanted to make sure that it was clear what those included. Given those constraints, the next thing we did was we took a look at what are the different methods we could create new funding sources to help with this deficit. We looked at several different ways to do this. We looked at increasing the fire tax, potentially increasing TOT, creating a CFD for city services, or imposing a utility user's tax, but also looked at increasing sales tax. And of the five options that seem to be the most viable, the sales tax is the one that actually covers the amount that we're going to need over time. So we wanted to kind of go through what the next steps would be if this is the way that we intend to go. Um, we want to be able to create enough time so that we can educate the public. And so the first steps would be to conduct public opinion research and gauge, re excuse me, gauge resident sentiment. Um, we would finalize our timetable and, and potentially put the ballot measure on the November um, vote. Um, we would initiate our stakeholder outreach um, and then go and conduct surveys prior to the final decision to go ahead and put it on the ballot. The final measure language and, ref and to refer it to the ballot has to be um, done, completed at least 88 days prior to November 5th. And at that time, we would conclude the public education portion. The vote would be conducted on November 5th, and then the county has 30 days to um, approve whatever the results are. Um, by mid-December, the council would have to certify the election, and that would potentially be a special meeting held to do that based on timing. And then tax collection would probably begin in April of 2025, and the first remittance would be received in July of 2025. With the um, new station coming on in 2025, those timelines even out. And so we've also asked um, Rob Kronke, um, he is a consultant that works on the public outreach to be here today, and he's going to virtually um, go into the next page for us. Rob? Yep. Good afternoon. Um, again, my name is Rob Karinke. I work with Avenue Services. I have my own firm, uh, Grassroots Lab. We're partners with Avenue. And we have worked with cities and counties across the state on public information related to the development and evaluation of potential measures. And what we've done is we've included a, a little bit of a timeline here. Looks like it might be cut off on, on the edge, but we're working with a number of municipalities right now who are considering such measures for next year. And I want to just walk through briefly what the typical steps are in the run-up to decisions about whether or not to proceed and the public information that goes along with that. 
typically uh, municipalities will conduct a public opinion um, research poll, um, working with a, a professional uh, pollster who could do a scientifically valid uh, survey of resident attitudes about city services um, and potentially test also their, their awareness and their reaction to certain demands on the city, um, such as staff has just walked you through in terms of the financial pressures the city faces, the rising demands for services and so forth. Taking some of the findings from that, um, what we would generally recommend and, uh, and help you with is a public information effort that is includes stakeholder outreach to key community groups and um, constituencies, um, a variety of um, you know, open houses and uh, town halls discussed to talk about some of these same issues in terms of demands on services and available resources. And to throughout that process, um, which can last several months, um, you know, up to maybe about nine or 10 months in some cases, uh, gather feedback from these uh, various constituencies to conduct additional, um, you know, potentially less scientific kinds of surveys, but allow people to um, complete exercises that really help reveal what residents' priorities are. Um, you know, do they rely, you know, do they lie more in public safety? Are they more in local services, streets and roads, and so forth? And really try and give staff and the council a better understanding about where the community is at as you um, continue to consider this potential measure to refer to the ballot. Um, as was articulated on the previous slide, that of course this effort has to conclude when the um, council does make a decision and a determination to refer a measure to the ballot, but the information campaign can be very critical in educating the public about the city's needs and also giving you guys the information you need um, in order to make a determination about whether to present it to them on a ballot. So I'd be happy to answer any questions about that, but that's um, the, the, the kind of tried and true path. Questions? I've got questions for Veronica, or are we gonna go back to her? Uh, let's open it up to all questions. Okay, perfect, thank you. Uh, great presentation, thank you. Um, the, you know, on the income side, we're very static, right? I mean, as far as the, the taxes we're generating there, there's no built-in increases on anything. Uh, structural fire tax, reimbursement for Prop A, that side's staying put, right? There's nothing we can do there. We could, we could potentially go out and increase the fire tax, right. but it's not substantial enough to cover the deficit. Got it, okay. And so I just wanna make sure everybody understands. So the, the new station comes online 2025. Uh, but even before that, with the existing three stations, we're looking at a 25% increase Correct. in our cost of fire between now and 2024, from 16.1 to 20.8 million. Correct. And that's just based on, can you get flesh out that a little bit about the why? I know the MOU, you talked about MOU and all this, but right. maybe people like to know a little more detail on that. Right. So one of the things that um, they increased were their, basically their rates and their benefits. Um, the Cal Fire has to be competitive with the various municipalities that have fire services. And so in order to do that, that's what they've you know, chosen to do and, and actually agreed to do with their um, fire service people. I can't think of what it's called. Um, so that's what they've done on the one hand, but they've also increased um, or decreased the number of hours that they can work. So currently they're allowed to work 72 hours um, of overtime, up to, up to 72 hours with their overtime. Um, what they are asking them to do is reduce it to 56 hours, which means we would have to bring on additional um, servicemen. 
Um, and, and, and immediately from our initial um, estimate from them for 22-23 to the new one, they increased it by two people. And so each year incrementally, we get an additional two firefighters um, to offset that re reduction in hours. Got it. And if I understand, if I remember discussions we've had, each additional fire person costs, what, $250,000, $300,000 per year with benefits, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. Okay. So that's non-negotiable. We're tied in with our contract with the county for that. However, on the income side, we're stuck. Correct. Um, and looking on the other side, projected impact to forecast and reserve, uh, talking about some of that deferred facility maintenance uh, coming from the reserves, is there any way to defer the deferment and, and kick those suckers down the road and save some money in that huh. regard? So unfortunately, um, if you look back in time, we could probably go back to about 2008 and show when we stopped doing um, maintenance on certain facilities. And so at this point, there are so many that are in a dilapidated state that doing that could create a bigger um, risk and greater cost in the future. Okay. Um, I'm sure there's some, I'm sure we're prioritizing them. That is not my field. That's his. <laughs> um, but ultimately, it is going to be a, a pretty substantial cost at some point. I Maybe it's getting in the weeds a little bit, but what are some of those projects? Just so the general public can understand what we're talking Can someone about. help yeah. me with uh, that? Sure. Um, sure. And as Veronica states, these are, these are projects that have been on the books for many years that have been continued to be deferred. I can tell you right off the, the bat, there's probably um, about $150,000 to $200,000 of PDAC. Uh, shower rooms uh, where we've got significant problems uh, with, with, with the restrooms, that sort of thing. There's uh, de deferred maintenance in the um, of other capital equipment there that need to be replaced. Um, based, so th those are the types of things that we're, we're learning all over the city. It just hasn't been done. Um, it's very irresponsible, honestly, not to be attacking those things right now because it puts you in a situation with the cost of labor and the cost of commodities that you're going to be paying a lot more down the road or replacing facilities instead of being able to fix them. Our two fire stations are excellent examples of that where it's gotten so bad uh, that there's, we're actually having ongoing cost analyses right now as to whether it's cheaper to replace them than fix them. So th these are the kind of things, it's very similar to your home. If you, don't, if you don't take care of things in your home, that plumbing leak starts affecting the floor, starts affecting the walls, that's exactly the kind of thing that we're faced with with some of our facilities now. Perfect, and one more, sorry. Okay, so and then looking at all the options for raising more revenue, um, you know, you're talking about possibly Prop A, uh, increase to the uh, special fire tax, increase to TOT, et cetera. It seems to me that uh, some of them, the burden falls on residents. Some, like the TOT, would fall exclusively to tourists, but a sales tax uh, is a bit of a mix between, you know, residents and uh, tourists falling in. Is there any kind of a number you have on sales tax revenue generated by outside of town or tourists versus uh, residents? So we're actually digging into that right now. We know that we tried to compare it to our TOT um, numbers and that one doesn't, didn't work. We're looking at a couple of the consultants that we have for um, uh, marketing. Um, the one that generated was from VisaView and because that's only credit cards, I didn't want to rely on it. We do have a secondary one that we just started working with and I'm hoping they can get that for me. Um, we do know that Palm Desert 
is the center of the world, no, of the Coachella Valley, and that um, the residents throughout the Coachella Valley do come and shop in Palm Desert. And so we do have that you know, immediate um, identification, but as far as visitors versus residents, I'm still trying to get that, and I will bring it back to you guys. Okay. Perfect, it just seems like our history has always been get the tourists, to pay for services for our 50,000 residents, and I'd like to hopefully continue doing that. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and I'll quickly add this perspective. When it comes to increasing worker costs, labor costs, what's driving that is the same recruitment and retention challenge uh, that we touched upon in connection with the Aquatic Center. Uh, so it's pretty inescapable uh, if we want to have those fire station staffed. So, yes, Councilmember Nisanda. Yeah, thank you, Mayor. And uh, well, it's clear we need to do something. So we've got to do something. And uh, maybe this question is for Rob, but I'll pose it to everybody. Uh, is it a one? choice only option potential for funding sources. We're, we're just looking here to choose one. Perhaps we could do a combination of two. So Rob, when you're doing your, your survey, are you going to uh, survey these other options that are presented to us? I, I know the first one, Prop A, the statistics say it'll fail. So that's probably out, but uh, like perhaps we raise the sales tax just 0.5%, half a percent or a quarter of a percent, and then maybe choose a utility user tax. I'm j just throwing that out there for discussion purposes. I mean, I might defer to, to city staff on, um, we would take our cues from them. Certainly it's possible to survey more than one option and see what resident attitudes are. And I think um, several folks on the dais have already articulated some of the relative merits of different proposals in terms of the burden placed on residents. We can certainly test um, one or more options for the city to consider. But I think another obviously important consideration is, is which ones actually um, will solve your solve your problem in the most expedient way. And it's the is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. Right. I saw like one the one option utility user was 10 million. Um, uh, the enhancement district was five million. So that's 15 million and then 11 million sales tax. Com you know, just there could be a variety of, of combinations. And I don't know if that's feasible or worth staff's time. I'm just throwing it out there. Well, uh, before Veronica weighs in, I would just feature these two real life considerations. It is entirely possible uh, that a state initiative or legislative action would change the threshold necessary for a sales tax increase. Uh, so something we have to think about is if we aim low now and two years from now, we think, gosh, another half percent would really be helpful. It may not be easily done at that point in time. And I tend to think given the current outrage over increased utility costs, any question that boiled down to, are you willing to increase your utility bill, <laughs> would get a pretty loud 
No, <laughs> but Veronica. I, you said it perfectly. I will just add one thing to that. Um, when we look at, so fire was the catalyst for looking at this. Of course, it's a big number that we need to take care of, um, but there are other services that could be impacted in the future when we talk about building the park in the North Sphere or any of the other services that we have coming online. And the expenditures that are associated with all that quickly outpace revenue increases. And so we just have to be conscious that that's a $16 million number now, but by the time we have all that built out, it could be higher than that, and we may need the full um, 1%. Thank you, Veronica. Mayor Pro Tem and then Council Member Arnick. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I had some of the same thoughts as my peers, in particular what Councilmember Nastande was wondering in terms of having some sort of combination, but in thinking of predicting um, voter behavior, I think if maybe we put two options on there, I think that maybe one group would think, no, that one might pass, and then we would end up with voters that decline both. So at first, that was my, my initial thought. We could spread it out more evenly. Um, but I think that we may end up in a situation where we don't get support for either, and that puts us at a, at a risk. And my question for, for Veronica is, I remember um, the first discussion we had um, where you say that the limit could be 2%. Am I correct in remembering that you said if we were to raise it by 1%, the state could come later and say, well, we're going to add that 1% anyway, and that would go to the state and not to us, versus collecting a 2% now, and then they can't take it? Or am I remembering that incorrectly? A little off. Um, what could happen is, Another tax entity, say the county, could come in and they could also assess a district, it's called a district tax. Um, they could assess a 1% or say they wanted to generate a one and a quarter percent tax increase. The problem is that if they do that and we do the 1%, it's over the 2% limit and that could cause an issue for us. The other problem is if we wait and they do that, then we're stuck with only 0.75%. And if that doesn't meet our needs, that creates another issue. Thank you. Councilmember Harnick. Thank you. I have uh, a question and a comment. The question is, why are we talking about Prop A? Did I miss something? That's the name of the fire tax that we did back in the early okay. 80s. Okay. All right. Um, then the, the other thing is, you know, focus groups will tell you that a half a cent is no more appealing than a cent. And you're safer going for that cent. And people don't always like taxes, but what they do like is when taxes are used well and in the best interest of the community. And everyone likes fire protection and safety and every kind of public safety offered. So when you say to somebody for a cent, and we can make sure that we can serve our community in our public safety as well as possible, it does make sense and it is logical to people. So I, I don't think it's something we should be afraid of. I think we should certainly be exploring this. Uh, to Remember that when we did, I think it was prop, was it prop, Proposition J or 11, whatever it was, we raised the TOT 2%. And it, it was a pretty comfortable win. So as long as people understand 
and know what the benefit is therein. Thank you. Thank you, Council Member Truby. Um, is there any, this I guess is for Veronica, is there any way to build in a sunset on it? Meaning uh, once we've hit certain benchmarks, like I know we talked earlier today about some of the property tax revenue coming back online with expiration of RDA rules. Um, and once we've got these capital improvement projects done, can we say there's a sun, I mean, it's so, so easy to impose taxes and rarely they ever get repealed. Um, so is there something that can be written into that? You know, once we hit certain benchmarks or thresholds, it goes away. So there's two different kinds of um, ballot measures that you can do. You can do a special tax or you can do a general tax. A special tax would have a sunset. However, a special tax requires two-thirds approval. It's a little bit harder to get it through. Um, a general tax has um, only a 50% plus one requirement. Um, there isn't anything that says the city council in the future, 20 years from now, could say we no longer need this, um, but it's not a requirement of, of that. So the taxpayers would be at the mercy of future councils to repeal that someday down the road. Got it. Okay. And if I could, when you talk about the RDA funds, that is capital improvements. Those are one-time costs versus we're talking about ongoing operational costs that are probably never going to come back down. Okay, but then we, we talked about um, currently we're only collecting like three and a half cents Correct. versus seven Correct. in certain areas of the city. Those will, those will expire and then we'll be getting the full 7%, which will bring in more revenue to our coffers. Okay, cool. All right. The notice time for closed session is upon us, so shall we wrap this up and shift gears? Someone say yes. <laughs> Okay. I approve. Is that a motion? <laughs> no, no motion needed. <laughs> All right. I'm going to open uh, the meeting so that we can retire to close session. Uh, I call to order the Palm Desert City Council successor agency to the Palm Desert Redevelopment Agency and Housing Authority hybrid meeting for uh, March 23, 2023. Is there anyone here who wishes to make a public comment on the closed session published topics? Uh, see none, Madam Mayor. Uh, then we will retire to closed session and hopefully be back with you in... Uh, 30 minutes or as close to it as we can. Later. Open this.